Hey guys, I'm Paul Bates, and this is the Fermentation Podcast. Join me on this journey to put fermentation into practice, create culture, and revive this lost art that connects all of us to our cultures of the past. Today is Friday, March 13th, 2015, and this is episode number 24. Today I have on the show a girl named Tara Witsit, and what a cool name that is. She's completely different than anyone else I've had on the show because she currently lives her life traveling in her bus that she turned into a fermentation classroom called Fermentation on Wheels. Imagine a bus that's actually a fermentation lab driving across the country. More on that in a bit, but all the topics and links for today's show will be in the show notes at fermentationpodcast.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of me, just email me at paul at fermentationpodcast.com or just go to the website and click on the contact button on the top. You can also connect to me on Facebook, Pinterest, YouTube, and Twitter. Just go to fermentationpodcast.com and you should see the links in the sidebar. Also, if you'd like to be a guest on the show, just head out to the website and click on the guest button on the top and fill out the guest submission form there. So a bit more about this episode, I had a great conversation with Tara on what it's like to travel across the country by bus, and how it's sometimes challenging to travel and ferment at the same time, but she's found ways around that. Tara loves meeting new people and teaching all about fermentation with all the different workshops that she puts on. She also loves to spread the many different cultures she's collected in her adventures with her culture swap. And as she travels from place to place, the cultures intermingle and change over time. But she can tell you more about all that. Hey, Tara, welcome to the Fermentation Podcast. Hi, Paul. Thank you. So for those out there that, you know, listening might not know who you are, can you just give them a, a brief introduction of yourself and, you know, what exactly is fermentation on wheels? Sure. So uh, my name's Tara Witsit, and I run a little project called Fermentation on Wheels. It's a little bigger than little now, I would say, but basically it's this kind of grassroots project that I travel with and I provide free food education and inspire people through workshops, literature, visual arts. Um, I'm an illustrator. And it's mostly as a way to raise awareness about food sustainability, as well as teach fermentation. I do this through a variety of different events. I hold big potlucks that are fermented food themed. I teach different kind of fermentation classes, uh, some vegetable fermentation, some about starter cultures. I have a more general starter cultures class as well as a, I do more in depth, uh, say with kombucha, I'll teach kombucha, which is one starter culture example. And basically what I've been doing with this project, it's a converted school bus and I converted it to house a workshop space as well as a fermentation lab. Um, I have a fermentation library as well. Lots of great literature from different writers around the country. And that's where I do some of my workshops, but it's also a space in which I used to just simply inspire people. So often I partner with nonprofits or urban farms, and the workshop happens in a larger space. And then that always follows with the tour of the bus, uh, which is just a fun space to really get people thinking about fermentation, talking about fermentation. I've been traveling since October 2013, so I've been on the road about 16 months. I'm on break for winter right now in New York City, 
And I've been traveling from Eugene, Oregon. So I drove all the way south to San Diego from Eugene, as far east as Savannah, Georgia. I uh, looped in to uh, Tennessee via North Carolina, then up to Kentucky through Virginia. And then I was in uh, the Northeast and New England all last summer. And so, yeah, now I'm in New York for the winter. I don't like to drive during the winter, especially now that I'm in the colder states. I was I was in the South last winter. But um, most of all, I, I like to tell people that a lot of my project is about building communities. So it's trying to bring people together who are fascinated by traditional food processes and um, just bridging those links. So being able to go to a place and bring people together within the local community and that way I've left, I've got an impact in that community after I've, I've left. So yeah, that's, that's my, one of my big goals. That is so cool. And I, I have to say, you know, teaching people fermentation and really just teaching in general, it's almost kind of symbolic how you're actually going across the country in a school bus. Yeah, it's, um, it's been a really great journey, you know, and I, a lot about, you know, a lot of fermentation is about community. Like you think of it, you know, you're working with a community of bacteria, right? And so you're actually working with food and a much more, I mean, it's like a life form itself, the food you're working with. And then you're trying to like bring that life into the communities that you visit. So it's, it's been really cool. And then also the aspect of like moving through different regions and the different environments where certain ferments thrive better. Some of them don't do as well. Uh, there have definitely been challenges as far as like with, um, say vinegar, kombucha movement is not so great for either of those ferments, but then like my wines, or the dairy kefirs really enjoy agitation. So, I mean, it has drawbacks for some of the things I'm doing, but also it's it can be really great for other ferments I'm working with. Yeah, that was one thing I was going to bring up. I mean, actually traveling with all this stuff, um, you know, just the agitation you were just saying, that it makes me think, you know, say you have uh, some water kefir or something along those lines that build up pressure. I'm sure you have to kind of watch that especially with bumps and everything. And from some of your pictures, it looks like, you know, you're a mason jar aficionado and uh, you like carboys, anything made of glass. So that's got to be an interesting challenge. Yeah, I have a very, uh, you know, I have a system. So all of my starter cultures that I store in quart mason jars, I actually have the plastic lids that, that you can buy for canning jars. So they're not uh, airtight, which works really well for that. And that's been kind of the best method I found for, for storing them while traveling. And then I can kind of burp them if pressure builds up. But more often, they're not going to build pressure like something with a metal screw top lid. And other than that, my uh, food fermentations, I just cover them with a cloth and a rubber band. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I guess just bringing up, you know, some of the recent publicity you had, you're in the New York Times, and I think it was appropriately called the Johnny Appleseed of Pickling. How's that been, you know, being almost celebrity-like? 
Well, it's been really intense. Um, wonderful, but overwhelming at times too. Uh, it definitely like makes my life easier travel wise. When I first started this project, I, 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 I did an immense amount of research just trying to find communities who would want to host me and my big bus uh, and, and, you know, host a workshop and, People were a little, I, I mean, I had just taken aback, like, whoa, this is um, a big request. You have this 40-foot-long bus, and you're doing what? And how long have you been doing this for? And, you know, now that I have more credibility, I can reach out to people, and they're just, like, absolutely, they're, like, stunned that I would contact them, and they're so excited. And, uh, you know, any kind of press is always good press in that case. I mean, I... I can't even tell you the number of times I had to sleep in truck stops when I was first starting out. And now it's just, I have, I have tons of amazing hosts who are just happy to have me really want to uh, consume the knowledge that I'm offering as well as, you know, do trades of sorts, whether it be vegetables from farmers I'm staying with or some kind of knowledge from a nonprofit in you know, some other food realm, so that's been really great. And then, then the overwhelming thing, I mean, I would say it's just the fact that I, I am a one-man show for the most part. So my workload has increased, um, I would say, twofold at least <laughs> since, the, since just the New York Times article, which, which is exciting. And I, I love working. But it's also my life is very intertwined with with my work, which is which is a beautiful thing. You know, I'm so happy that I get to work that my work is intertwined in my life. But it's also it also makes it a lot harder because I am I am so passionate about what I do. So I can actually I can spend a little too much time doing it and I forget to relax and and realize that you know fermentation is is fun too it's not all work but then you know you you feel that pressure you really do that you have to keep producing awesome stuff which which you know I plan to do and I'm I'm glad for that but um yeah I know exactly how you feel there you know when you're the regular life you have kind of mixes and you feel like you just have to keep producing but it, yeah, I know what you mean. It's definitely a lot of fun too. You know, you get a lot of positive reinforcement. Yeah, and I I, I love making things. You know, it's I, I love making with my hands. That's why I do this. Whether it's like working on my bus or fermenting food, cooking food, uh, it's it's really great. And I think now it's just keeping up with my kind of like my online presence. I mean, I definitely want. I want to make sure I keep up with my my work and the expectations of people because I, I want to keep providing this awesome service to the people and I want to keep making new awesome foods and I want to keep researching and meeting more people and so I'm I try to remember that it's also still important for me to do as much reaching out as people who are you know, also reaching out to me because it's really important that I make this journey something that that is also guided by my desires and what I want to learn. So, yeah. So just to maybe go back in history a little bit, how long have you actually been fermenting? You know, when did you even start? 
I started fermenting in 2011. I, I was introduced to fermentation early in 2011. And then a friend of mine came over one day and said, let's make sauerkraut. And I said, yeah, that sounds great. I would love to make sauerkraut. And so we made sauerkraut. And then we also made cucumber pickles. This was just one day. Um, I've always been fascinated by food, but always loved food. I was definitely at a point in my life um, where I'd been a little more distanced from from food and spending a lot of time in the kitchen just because my work schedule was very demanding. Uh, and then once that happened, once I broke into actually like doing these fermentation processes, I kind of just exploded from there and and began fermenting every vegetable I got my hand on just out of pure curiosity. Um, and the results were were awesome. I had really I had really great results. So I just kept going, kept learning. You know, I, I always like to tell people when I'm teaching that a huge part of fermentation is just experimentation and practice and you know you just keep trying different combinations of of the raw ingredients that you love and you know ultimately you're going to get something super delicious and and if you like pickles which usually if you're attending one of my workshops you do love pickles you'll you'll have you'll have some super tasty foods no, I bet. It always seems to start with sauerkraut and pickles somehow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. They're kind of like the the more common, easiest to approach. And um, it's so versatile, that form of fermentation, just uh, wild fermentation, adding salt to encourage lactobacillus. I mean, you can, you can really experiment with such a wide array of foods, once you learn those those basic steps, you've actually made quite a bit of stuff too. At least from the the pictures, you know, you share, you know, large batches of sauerkraut. I guess that would be for your workshops, and um, you must meet a ton of people. It looks like you put on a quite a workshop there. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. My my workshops, my vegetable fermentation workshops, which are definitely the most popular, especially in my travels in the Northeast and New England, which has uh, thus far been my most in-depth, regionally speaking, as far as um, my my tour goes. I do a lot of vegetable fermentation, and the way that works is um, because everything is free, and it's just, you know, so I, I don't... I don't give the the ferments away per se, but what we do is we make a large batch together at the workshop, and then I show I show the audience how to weigh the ferment down below the brine, cover it, proper storage, so on, and then that ferment actually goes on the bus, and the next workshop that I have the same thing. So I'm collecting vegetable ferments from all around the country and they're made by all of these different people because these are hands-on workshops so we actually have lots of cutting boards and knives we're making the ferment together and everything goes into one big gallon jar uh and then i also feature a kind of tasting before each workshop so people at the beginning of each workshop before we actually get into the nitty-gritty and making the food 
we taste all of the ferments from the bus that have been fermented from all of the previous workshop attendees in the different cities or states, which is really awesome and fun. And, you know, there's always a very uh, diverse amount of ferments that I'm traveling with because I try to really mix it up every place I go. Sometimes we do it with a saltwater brine. So we actually pour salt water over or other times we're shredding vegetables or doing sauerkraut. So we're just adding salt and extracting the water from the actual veg to, to make the brine. So, you know, it's, it's really great for people to be able to taste that variety and like see all of the possibilities before we actually start making. And then I always describe the different ways in which we can ferment vegetables. And what an awesome idea that is. That's like a, it really is a community culture. If you're traveling around the country and everybody's involved in making this, what a cool idea. Yeah, it's so fun. And, you know, I didn't actually, like, I didn't have that planned when I first started. And um, it just naturally came to be because I had so much food. And I, I like I like that there's so much food on the bus. I like that there's so much to explore on the bus. And that's part of what makes the bus a really beautiful space to to discover fermentation, for sure. Speaking of the bus, what gave you the idea, you know, to use a bus rather than like an RV? Or, you know, did you get any ideas from like the tiny house movement? Or where'd the bus come from? Well, the bus, um, it, it wasn't... The typical, like, Eureka, I, I have a great idea. Um, I was definitely inspired by other travelers I've met in Eugene, specifically a couple in Eugene who are really good friends of mine named Banjo and Sheena. They had just gotten back from a long trip that they did with a converted bus and a, and a band of friends. And I thought it was a really, like, beautiful, romantic, awesome thing that they took off on a bus for half a year or whatever it was. But I didn't, I wouldn't say that's exactly where the idea came from. I, I, I dreamt it up and the dream was very terrifying <laughs> at first, but I, I do think the dream was inspired by, you know, certain people I had met during that time. And, um, the dream I, I had, it was, fermenting food in a school bus, literally what I'm doing now. And then I had it three nights in a row. So I, even though I was terrified the first night I had it, I mean, I say terrified, it's because it's not like I was immediately going to do it. I, I, I thought it was funny more so. And then I, I probably was more terrified after I had it the third time in a row. It was literally three nights in a row of having this dream. So I saw it as a kind of sign. My subconscious was trying to tell me something. And I said, all right, well, let me try to work with this. And maybe I'll sit down and start writing about what this would actually look like. And out of that came a pretty clear mission about, about you know, accessibility, creativity, community, all of the important factors that bring fermentation on wheels, the life that it has. Um, and I, I just, I loved what came together from those few weeks of writing down everything I, I would do if I were to get a bus and ferment in it. So, so then after that, I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to go shopping. And I, I went shopping for school buses 
I looked at a few and I found mine. My bus is mechanically sound. Uh, it's, it's a large bus. It's 40 feet. It was a military vehicle. I have a lot of storage on it. It's a beautiful, beautiful bus and it has an interesting history. And I, I really liked the woman I bought it from. She was really behind my project. She thought it was so cool. And she had had issues trying to sell her bus prior to meeting me. And she was also getting offered more money to sell it for scrap metal than she was, you know, asking for to sell it. So she, she felt, you know, really, she was really psyched that I was so interested in the bus. And that's kind of, you know, and then from there, it was just, uh, she had been living in it. So there were some conversions in place already, but, um, I did things like I put a wood burning stove in that was a priority because I I would be leaving in October. So I knew it would get cold. So proper heating was number one and building the fermentation station, which I'm sure from pictures you've seen where my carboys are lined up underneath and I have all of my vegetable ferments on a second tier. And then I have a, a maple top that, that is on a, uh, yeah, I'm looking at that right now. It's It looks like a three-tier, and there's several different circles where you just put a mason jar into a circle, and that's what holds it while you're driving. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the station is is very secure on the bus. I, I built it with a friend of mine. He was really – he's a carpenter. He's a genius. And, of course, I, I did a lot of the – I would say the grunt work, more like. But um, he built my vision – and it was just such a blessing. So he, he kind of like had the framework and brought it to me. And then we got all of my fermentation vessels, traced them and jigsawed the pieces out so that everything would fit just so. And um, it's you know screwed in from the bottom of the bus. So like we went underneath the bus and secured it from, from the very bottom and then also through the sides of the bus. So it's, yeah, it's a pretty amazing structurally sound piece that I'm very proud of and very grateful for for you know the generosity of of my friend Daniel who helped me make that happen. What a cool idea. It looks like from the carboys you you make a good amount of wine. I do. Yeah, wine is a a serious hobby of mine and I I definitely I got into wine early in my fermentation practice, almost right after sauerkraut and cucumber pickles, actually. I was maybe a month later with the same friend who taught me how to make sauerkraut. I guess the two of us, you know, we were just like, oh, wow, fermentation, so amazing. Let's make wine. And then we just kind of ventured into that, and the wines were really, really good. So, um what did you make them out of? Like, what what kind of wines? And did you use wild fermentation or champagne yeast? Or, uh, yeah, actually, champagne yeast. I guess Lovelin eleven twenty two is one of my favorite commercial yeasts that I use. Uh, and I started making sizers. So sizer is an apple honey wine. It's kind of it's a similar process to if you're going to start making cider. So uh, if you were to do, say, a wild cider, even a cider where you're pitching a yeast, you just press apple juice and then you let it go. You let it ferment. 
So with a sizer, you do something similar, except usually you'll kill the yeast that is wild because, you know, there's always fear that that yeast will not bring as delicious of a flavor as another yeast, which is, you know, which sometimes happens. It really depends. You never know what you're going to get. These, these processes are really unpredictable. Um, but we would integrate a, a champagne yeast because we would add more sugar. So the sugar that we added was honey. So that's what makes a sizer. You have about half apple juice and then uh, honey water that you add. So that's more food for the yeast to eat. And then you add a yeast strain that can tolerate those sugars and eat them up and turn it into usually going for anywhere between 13 to 15% when you're doing a uh, sizer. So yeah, that was what I first started experimenting with. And then from there, I did other honey wines. I, I really love honey wines. And I'm, I'm starting to get into beer now, which I really enjoy. And I've, I've always done a lot of ciders too. Wild ciders. I, I love wild ciders. And I, I visit, I, I do a lot of farming on the road. So I work with a lot of farmers who have awesome organic orchards and I, I love seeing what that fruit will bring to the beverage as far as the flavor profile is concerned. Sometimes it's not super delicious, but sometimes you get something just so unique and lovely. And I, uh, I really look forward to, to those beverages the most. I can only imagine what some of those taste like, especially, you know, if you compare more of like a commercial farm to like an organic, uh, like a permaculture, biodynamic type of a farm. What, what would be some of your favorite flavors that you've made? I see a, a picture of you here with a ton of blueberries and it looks like it's on a farm. Did you make a wine out of that? I've done a blueberry wine. I'm not sure which picture. I, I actually haven't done. Oh, yes. Those blueberries. Uh we picked in Maine, and we made a beer with those blueberries. It was a, a blueberry ale. It was a blueberry mint lemon balm ale, and it was fantastic. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's where the blueberries went. And that, that was a collaboration I did with my friend Jonah in Arundel, Maine, who has a little project he runs called Cooperative Fermentation. So yeah, that was, that was a great experiment. We didn't know how it would come out. And then, you know, I was long gone and I first served it in Brooklyn when I got here in November and did an event at a, uh, a homebrew shop called Bitter and Esters. And we, we kegged that beer and everyone was, you know, just really amazed by it. It's a really different kind of flavor. It's got this like minty yet fruity kind of dark, robust profile to it. But yeah, I hope to do it again. I'm also hoping to put that recipe on my blog soon. That's awesome. Do you actually have a, a kegerator right on the bus? Or do you normally you know, pull up to where you're going and then do it there? I do have a kegerator. I have two. They were, yeah, they were gifts from someone in Albany, New York, a, a workshop attendee. So those have been really great to have. I haven't used them a bunch yet since since I've had them. I always bottled my beverages, and that way I can use them as barter tools. It's a really great way to move along and kind of do trades 
with people for, um, you know, either help I need with the bus, especially because there's a lot on the bus that I, I do need help with as far as like, I have a solar system, the upkeep of that and like the technology of batteries, which I've learned a lot about on the road, but I'm still, I've still got a long way to go on my electric stuff, my plumbing, uh, there, there's a lot of knowledge that I'm definitely not expert in yet where um, having a bottle of wine or beer to offer someone who is expert in such areas can be really helpful. So um, I do like to bottle my beverages, but having having a keg is really nice. What I like about it is that when I hold potlucks, I can have the keg for a kind of by donation. If you want to have a, a glass of wine or beer, then you can, you can grab one from the bus. Or I, I usually take the kegs out into the potluck space. So, yeah. That's some great barter items. I mean, say, you know, you're moving. Normally you give, give some guys a, a pack of beer and they'll do anything for you. But, you know, <laughs> I have a homebrew. Who wouldn't want some of that? Yeah, it's been really great. And sauerkraut, too. I mean, I I put my solar system together piecemeal along the road, and it took me from Northern California to North Carolina to get it all in place. And I mean, it was also just because, you know, as money came in, I've had to be frugal at certain points on the road. I, I was traveling with a solar panel I bought in Mississippi, like on my floor when I was driving, I, I would I would store it there. And when I stopped at a farm, I'd like drag the panel out and put it on my hood and plug it in and charge my system and put it back in. But there are a lot of issues with installing panels on old buses or just RVs in general. So then in North Carolina... I met these guys who did it for me for sauerkraut in exchange for sauerkraut. So, I mean, you know, the foods can be really helpful as barter too. And the solar panel, is that just for the refrigeration? The solar panel is uh, refrigeration, all of my lighting, charging my computer. I mean, like any electrical stuff that I need to run, I run through my solar. So I'm, I'm very off grid in that way, which was my, which was something I really wanted when I left home. I, I knew that I wanted to have an off grid space. Are you, are you actually talking to me now from the bus or somewhere else? I am somewhere else. The bus would be really <laughs> loud, loud right now. Actually, I'm, I'm parked in a pretty industrial area. So I'm in my, I'm in my friend's apartment in Queens, New York, Long Island city. It's very nice here. <laughs> Must be a little colder up, up there than, you know, down here in Daytona Beach, Florida. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. Much colder. It's been an endless, I mean, what feels like an endless winter, just uh, today it, it really started snowing again. And, you know, it's March now. So I think everyone's eager for spring. So how does that, uh, you know, how does that actually fit into your workshops and when you travel I know you said um, when you're actually driving, it's kind of hard on some of the ferments, but you know, I'm sure the weather probably gives you quite a bit of heartache also, you know, being colder up there in New York. And what do you have to do to deal with that? Yeah, it, temperature is one of the biggest challenges for sure. Having, you know, having a space where I'm fermenting food, it's, uh, you know, it gets really hot in the bus sometimes. I, I 
stayed in New England most of the hottest months this year. So it was better than it could have been. I tend to just keep my windows down so I get a good amount of airflow and that that cools things down. I also have a fan that I run off of solar and that that also helps a bit. I wouldn't say it's it's ideal and it's not an AC unit, but I also I don't have the power to run AC. In the winter, well, this has been the most challenging winter for sure as far as keeping anything on the bus. I've had I've had a few ferments freeze over and, you know, I lost them. I kind of I put a few things to sleep on the bus and that's okay. I'm not too sad about losing them. But yeah, I mean and then last winter I I was completely in my bus. The entire winter. I was also, as I mentioned earlier, I was in the south, so it wasn't nearly as cold as it's as it is up here. I mean, because I was in the bus pretty much twenty four seven, I had my heat going all the time. Whereas now I'm not in my bus twenty four seven. I spend a lot of time out of my bus. So it's just you know, it's impossible to control. And a lot of my starter cultures, uh, they live in my friend's place right now and I'm really grateful to him for letting me use his space to to do a lot of projects and keep my cultures healthy. Uh, and some of my cultures I've actually, I've put to sleep. Some of my, kombu- I have a very large kombucha culture collection and I, uh, you know, I just decided to say goodbye to some and I'll start a new, I'll collect more cultures along the road and, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. So yeah, I mean it definitely has that cycle with the with the seasons. With having, you know, that large collection of kombucha cultures, do they actually taste different from one another? Definitely. Definitely. Uh each kombucha culture brings its own unique flavor to the brew and um that's something I I really like to celebrate is the uniqueness of the starter culture of bacteria and yeast, even within a species. So the class I do get cultured, which is a more general approach to starter cultures. I focus on kombucha, sourdough and water kefir. And for each culture I have, I have three different cultures from three completely different places uh, among my travels and I make a brew. I, I usually do water kefir or kombucha, and then I'll, I'll do three brews all with the same ingredients. So say I have some cherry juice, and I, I do the same beverage with all three of my water kefir cultures. And then we taste each one of those, and each one is different. Sometimes it's slight, sometimes it's not so slight, but... They definitely like one has a, a cheesier kind of flavor, and and another is more more subtle. And it's it's hard to describe these different flavors because obviously they're. I mean, the bacteria and yeast are introducing those flavors, and those flavors are hard to describe. But uh, they definitely each have their own thing going for them. So yeah, that workshop is all about celebrating the uniqueness of the starter culture. Sourdough starters are, are a great, more common example of that. I'm sure you've 
maybe tried or had different sourdoughs from different time periods and places. And they're all, I mean, completely different, like the smell and the, the taste. And Yeah, they definitely taste different. I actually have a sourdough on its second rise. I'm making some bread. You actually reminded me I have to throw it in the oven soon. But yeah, they definitely taste different. You know, when you get a starter culture from one person and then, you know, another person. Yeah, recently I've been feeding one and making a lot of bread out of it. Wow, some of them just, they really taste amazing. It's almost hard to describe what it tastes like. You just have to, you know, make it and try it. Uh, Actually, when you make sourdough, you don't have an oven on the bus. I guess you would have to go off the bus to make your bread. Yeah, yeah, I do go off the bus to, to make bread. I do a lot of sourdough pancakes on the bus. Like I said, I, I, I'm often with hosts. So something I like to do when I come to someone's home, I, I make them a loaf of bread. That's one of the first things I like to do. Because, you know, everyone loves fresh bread. <laughs> and then I, you know, maybe I'll make an extra loaf for myself to bring with me on the road. But I, I mean, I also really enjoy one of my favorite things is, you know, sometimes I'll go to a campground for a few days just to get away and be on my own. And I almost always do sourdough pancakes for myself when I'm, when I'm out camping. And that's, you know, that's comfort food for me, for sure. Oh, yeah. The flavor is hard to beat on a sourdough pancake. Yeah. With the leftover, I've been making lots of that here and there. And yeah, sourdough, boy, that really does make quite a bit of extra. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I have a sourdough from Alaska that's 90 years old. And I, I have like a 10-year-old sour. And, and that 90-year-old Alaskan starter culture is fed with milk and white flour. That was the traditional feeding of that sourdough. And then I have a 10 year old rye sourdough starter that I feed with rye flour and water. And, you know, those two just alone as examples are completely different from one another for the obvious reasons that, you know, they've, they've got one has rye flour, one has white, white flour. And then, you know, the milk adds something interesting to it too. And then there's another starter I have and I, I feed it with brines. Like I'll, I'll give it sauerkraut juice to instead of water. And that makes it like really fantastic, tangy, wild, crowdy, like fla- it gives it that crowdy like flavor, which I really love. So well, that's really interesting. I never actually heard of that one before actually feeding your sourdough with a, a brine. I'll have to try that sometime with like a separate my batch and try something different. Yeah, I, I got that idea from um, the food co-op in Jackson, Mississippi. They have a, a bread maker there who does a, a sauerkraut starter bread. And it's so good. I mean, she was like a master baker, but she brought a loaf to a potluck I did and it was so good. When she told me she was feeding this specific sourdough with kraut juice, I was like, oh, gosh, that's so cool. And so now I, I have a starter specifically fed with kraut juice, and I love it. When you are going through Tennessee, did you have a ha- happen to have a chance to, you know, to meet up with Sander Katz? Or have you ever met him on any festivals or anything? Yeah. Um, I stayed with Sander Katz for a few days. And Liberty, Tennessee, 
and we had fun. It was great. He's a wonderful host. Uh, he showed me around his area. We went to Short Mountain Sanctuary to a potluck there, and you know, he knew I was a fan of potlucks. My my bus destination sign says "Life is a potluck." So, yeah, it was great. So we went to a potluck at Short Mountain Sanctuary and met a lot of people. Talked fermentation. I've met up with him a couple times in uh, well, once in in Kentucky. I saw him at a fermentation festival and then also in Vermont. Uh, in Vermont, I actually gave a short presentation about fermentation education and being an emerging educator in the world of fermentation for a, a class he was teaching at Sterling College. And uh, yeah, it was really fun. He's he's wonderful. He's a, he's a joy to be around. And then, yeah, I saw him at, at Solar Fest too. So we've converged a few times. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. If I ever get to any of these uh, fermentation festivals, I have to look you up and see see where you are. You know, to get a tour of the bus. Definitely. Um, I guess so. You're in Florida. Yeah, which is a little hot down here. So I'm sure you know driving down here, you would probably be baking in the bus. <laughs> You know, I, I considered going to Florida in my original uh, my original route that I'd drawn out before I left Eugene, Oregon. I was planning on going to Florida, but by the time I got to that part of the country, the idea of going into Florida was just intimidating, actually. Like, the idea of, you know, it's like driving the bus is the hardest thing I do. It's just, it's a lot of energy, a lot of physical energy, a lot of mental energy to just like focus on the road and drive this enormous thing. And so, yeah, venturing down to Florida, once I got near, I was like, I just, I can't do it right now. I'm not, you know, I'm not ready. It's not well planned enough. I, I hadn't, I wasn't able to make a lot of contacts in Florida. So, yeah, so I skipped it. So say you have, um, you know, like a handful of things that you can take off the bus and, you know, you're leaving in a hurry. And what would be like your favorite things that you would have to bring with you from the bus of all your cultures? Say like, you know, a handful or five things that you would have to bring with you. What are your favorites? Mm, definitely a water kefir culture that I got in Tumacockery, Arizona. It's really, really lovely water kefir starter and my Alaskan and rye sourdoughs, which I mentioned earlier. I figured you would have to bring that one. <laughs> 90 years old. <laughs> yeah. And then a kombucha culture that I have from Baltimore, from my friends at Hex Ferments, Megan and Shane Carpenter. They make great kombucha. Their culture's really lovely. And then my Jun culture, which is from North Carolina, from a uh, herbalist, botanist of sorts. His name is Mark Williams. He's a teacher in North Carolina, in Asheville. Uh, are you familiar with Jen? Yeah, I was actually, you know, when you were talking about kombucha, I was going to ask you that, but I wasn't sure, you know, if you had any with you or, you know, if you actually grew any. I, I haven't actually tried it, but I've heard it's really good. It's like a, light, a nice lighter type of a kombucha with green tea. Yeah, so Jen, what really stands out about Jen is that you feed it with honey 
rather than sugar. And the honey really creates this this subtle flavor. It's it's much. I guess it's like less pungent than kombucha. I mean, of course, it can get pungent the the longer it ferments, but uh, even at the stage where the the sugars have been eaten, but you still have sweetness left. Um, it's less pungent than kombucha would be in that stage. Uh, so it's got this like really mild, lovely flavor and green tea is, is the tea it prefers. However, the John I have enjoys a variety of different teas. So that's, that's been really fun to work with. And, uh, and, and, John is mysterious as far as the origin of John is concerned. It's probably a branch off of kombucha at one point in time. Someone was, you know, probably just like weaned it off sugar and then started feeding it honey. And it was a process in which, you know, you got the John culture and it's, it's not super popularized. There's actually only one city where it's sold commercially and that's Eugene, Oregon. Um, Maybe there are more now that I don't know of, but from what from what I know, that's that's not the case yet. Um, and and it's not like you can go to the store and just buy some to taste it. You actually have to get a culture from somewhere, right? Right, because it it is only sold commercially in in Eugene. So it's yeah, it's it's hard to find. And that so that's a culture I I take really good care of because there are a lot of people that want to experiment with Jen, especially if. I work with a lot of farmers. A lot of these farmers have bees or, you know, maybe just urban homesteaders who have bees as well. They are harvesting honey regularly. So it's actually really sustainable for them to have a junk culture rather than a kombucha culture. So I, you know, I make sure to take really good care of my john for whenever I, I'm in touch with, with those people. So my cultures are, I guess I didn't mention before, but my cultures, I also, I share them with people all over the country. So it's, it's not just a collection for display. It's actually a, a collection to further help build the community. Yeah. I saw you had a, a starter culturing and like a culture swap. Yeah. Yeah. I always do swaps anywhere I go. And, um, I do, I do sell my cultures now. It used to be just by donation. If, uh, if you didn't have something to swap, but, now that's become a source of income for for my project is that I that I, I sell them and I sell them for ten dollars a piece. So that's something you can go home with whether you have something to swap or not. And I'm always open to swaps that they don't have to be other starter cultures. It could be um a jar of honey, you know, like whatever whatever I True. might want to have on the bus. Yeah, definitely. I mean even $10, if I'm at an event and I see something, you know, like say you have a tiny bit of that Alaskan sourdough or, you know, a little bit of Jun, uh, I would, you know, fall over myself paying $10 for something like that. So, because, you know, it's going <laughs> to yeah. last forever as long as you take care of it. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, these, these cultures are super resilient. You know, they're, they get a lot of love. They've been around a long time. I, um, you know, I, I have, the opportunity to have like, I, I mean, I, I could have a hundred cultures on my bus right now, but I don't because I, I make sure that I, I hold on to a few, you know, I keep the most resilient, the ones that I know are going to produce good results for the people that I'm, I'm giving them to. And, you know, I, I know that starter cultures, purchasing starter cultures online or 
at a, you know, from your local kombucha retailer, there's a huge market for it. And, um, I think that what I offer them for, it's a really, it's a great deal. And it's, you know, it's, it's more accessible, I would say. And it's definitely, I would, I, it's definitely part of the accessibility aspect of my project that I'm able to provide people with starter cultures so they can go home and experiment with them on their own. That's pretty exciting. I guess in terms of just fermentation in general, everybody's had different mistakes with mold or whatever, and you have so many different cultures on the bus. Do you ever, you know, how do you deal with mold and how often do you get it? Um, You know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I get mold occasionally. Like if I let something ferment for a really long time and it uh, peeps above the brine, then I'll I'll get some mold action. Uh, I just scrape it off. The only really severe thing that's ever happened to one of my sauerkrauts was I had (laughs) black soldier fly larvae in one and it was really uh quite a surprise that was in october in new jersey and i was staying with some farmer friends of mine and i took the sauerkraut out we were going to have dinner and i brought up all these varieties and then this one sauerkraut was especially aged we found the black soldier flies and said oh well well we weren't sure what they were so we did a Google search and we discovered there are black soldier fly larvae. And then we also discovered that they're great for compost. So, uh, you know, people who use like worms and compost, even more productive are black soldier fly larvae. So, uh, oh, yeah. that was something I, I tried to integrate into my composting system on the bus because I, I do a lot of composting on my bus. I don't know if it worked out. I don't think I, I just couldn't provide an environment for them in which they could really thrive. I just don't have, you know, there are so many projects I'd, I'd love to get into. It's like I've been offered inoculated uh, logs, ino- uh, logs inoculated with uh, shiitake and, you know, like all kinds of wild stuff. It's like, you know, I would love to do that. But considering how much stuff I've got going on right now, like the number of pets I have, <laughs> I'm going to have to pass on that. So, yeah, they would have become pets, the the black soldier fly larvae. So, I mean, I could say that was a mistake, but it was an interesting discovery, more like. And, uh, you know, we, we didn't eat it and... We we weren't too sad about it, I would say. <laughs> yeah, those black soldier flies—they they're so useful, you know, with like vermicomposting, and they are just absolutely voracious eaters. If anybody goes and YouTube's black soldier fly larvae, they'll eat you know an entire fish within like you know so many hours compared to a regular like red wiggler worm composting. But yeah, I I don't think you know, I would want them in my in my ferments. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But I mean, I guess it happens. Um, I guess you know when you're fermenting, you, you were saying uh, you just scrape it off or whatever. Do you um do you do any kind of anaerobic fermentation? You know, um, like airlocks, like the new um, crowdsource or probiotic jar, or do you ever do any kind of ceramic crock? You know, with the water moats or or how, how do you normally do all of your vegetable ferments? I I just have weights and a tea cloth that I I put on top of the rubber band, and my my weights are 
I use river rocks from the Willamette River, which is my my home base river. And they're uh, they're non-porous, super smooth rocks. I just thoroughly wash them and then put them, keep them in boiling water for 15 to 20 minutes before each use. And that's my go-to weight. Um, they work really well. And I, I've never seen the need for an airlock system. I don't really like having extra stuff and plastic and this and that. I mean, you know, I have airlocks for my wines and that's, that's enough for me to just keep track of those. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very simple setup as far as that goes. Gotcha. Yeah, everybody has their own way. I, I keep experimenting with all different types just to, you know, to see what it looks like on the counter, what the results are. Boy, I just made some really amazing Indian spice cauliflower. And I think that's going to be my go-to favorite thing, probably over pickles now. Um, oh. I, got, I got the recipe. Got the recipe from you know Melanie Hoffman of Pickle Me Too. I don't know if you've ever been on her site, but that recipe totally amazing. Yeah, cool. I yeah, that's funny you bring up cauliflower. Last night was the monthly meetup for NYC Ferments, and uh, it was the theme was spice, and a lot of the three people brought. Um, Spiced cauliflower fermented, fermented cauliflower. So um, I, I got to eat a lot of fermented cauliflower last night. It was really nice. I, I love fermented cauliflower. I love a like, curry-style fermented cauliflower. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's pretty amazing. Throw that into a rice dish, and I think you really have something going there. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Oh, um, I guess one thing I usually bring up to everybody, you know, just to get their take on it, what do you think about, you know, the actual health aspects of fermentation? Um, do you think it actually has that much effect on your health or is it more, you know, you enjoy the flavor of it and just like to spread the cultures or, you know, have you noticed uh, any kind of health benefits? Yeah. I mean, I definitely think, I definitely feel that my health has benefited from fermented foods. If anything, there's been a major increase in my energy um, since I've, since I've been eating more fermented foods, uh, I'm way less prone to getting like the common cold, which I hadn't had for three years until this winter. <laughs> uh, and I, I think it more had to do with the, the weather drop just like super sudden, but, but even then I can, I can zap a common cold pretty quickly just through diet and herbal remedies. I have a pretty holistic approach to all my ales. So, um, yeah. And I mean, I definitely something I, I really like to tell people is that I mean, I notice health benefits simply from being an avid cook and, you know, making, making food at home is the best way to nourish yourself inside and out. I mean, just, you know, there's, there's like the making of it, being involved with your food, being close to your food. And then, you know, usually when, when you're making it home, you're using, you're using a lot less junk. There's just like, there's a lot less extra stuff that's, that's added into when you're eating. I mean, that's especially in like the fast food world. I mean, that's, you know, of course the best example I can think of, of eating food that won't benefit your health. 
but it's such a healthy practice to get back in your own kitchen and, you know, learn how to ferment your own foods. It's, it's an amazing transformative process and they're good for you. They're very good for you. They, and they enhance your food as far as like the mineral and vitamin content is concerned. And they also enhance it because you're actually consuming bacteria that's going to help populate and diversify the bacteria that's already inside of you. And that's just part of keeping a healthy microbiome, which is, you know, actually really, really important to staying healthy and keeping good digestive health, especially my, my digestive health has never been better since I started consuming lots of fermented foods. And I, I can definitely say that. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Definitely part of a, a good, healthy diet. So I guess as we, you know, kind of wrap up and get toward the end here, um, say you have somebody that's just coming into one of your workshops and they've never even heard of like, you know, they're, they're used to like store-bought pickles and they don't know anything about salt brines or um, say they're nervous about this. And, you know, where do you actually get them started? And, you know, what, what do you tell them? Like, what would be some of your thoughts for them? Well, I always let people know, you know, try, try again. There's proof that it's difficult to discourage the robust bacteria we work with in fermentation. So you're more likely to end up with something that just doesn't taste good rather than something that will make you ill. And then in regards to, you know, people wanting to get into it, but not really knowing how to go about doing it, it's way easier to approach fermentation with others who are also interested in getting involved. And so whether that's like finding a meetup online of, you know, maybe there's not a fermentation meetup, but there are all kinds of meetups of people who are fascinated by, by food. And if that's something you can bring to that meetup and kind of introduce uh, as, as, as something to get involved with. And I mean, you know, so many people are interested in fermentation right now. It's, it's not, it's not too difficult of a time to build a community that you can start experimenting with and making these foods. So, um, you know, my, my biggest advice is, you know, find, uh, find a community where you can practice and experiment with. Cause it's definitely, it's definitely harder to get really into it alone you know it's it's good to have support and I think that goes with most things like whether it's a mentor or a, a colleague of some sort or you know colleague friend whatever you want to call it peer it really helps to have someone else to be enthusiastic with over this like new fascinating awesome process that is fermentation and I mean it's not new right this is this is an age-old practice, but it's coming back anew. It has, like, there's definitely a new flame in fermentation because fermentation is being seen in ways that people never saw it before when they first started doing this. I mean, especially with the newfound interest in the microbiome, uh, a lot of artists are really interested in fermentation. It's a visually pleasing process to... Uh, I, d I definitely find that and um, as as an illustrator and photographer, I've, I've integrated fermentation into a lot of my art pieces today and 
you know, the past few years. So yeah, find other people to do it with. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. And you, you definitely have a lot going on. So um, say, you know, people want to follow what you're doing, uh, maybe even find out where you are. They can maybe attend one of your workshops or visit your website. Uh, where can they go to actually follow you? You know, do you have a website, Facebook, anything else you'd like to share? I do. I have a website. It's www.fermentationonwheels.com. You can easily Google fermentation on wheels and find my website, my Facebook, lots of literature on the project too. I have a Twitter, which is my name, Tara Witsit. I have a Tumblr, but my website has lots of recipes too. So if you want to get into, uh, you know, making foods and you want a place to start, then you can definitely follow some of the recipes on my website. And something, something else I'd like to mention is I, uh, I am a nonprofit, so I do all of my traveling based on donations and I do a lot of grant writing and that's, that's how I do everything I do. So I'm very lucky to be sponsored by a nonprofit in New York City called Fractured Atlas. And through them, I can receive tax-deductible donations. Information on that is also on my website. So if anyone's interested in further supporting my my mission and my travels, uh, that that's a way to do it. So you know. Awesome. I think I'll definitely have to have you back on the show just to see what's going on. You know, you, you're all over the place. I'm sure you come up with all kinds of interesting stories. Yeah, so, that'd be great. It's been a lot of fun. So everything we've talked about on today's show will be in the show notes. And I invite everyone to come out to fermentationpodcast.com and leave some comments. And also check out Tara's cool site, fermentationonwheels.com. She has a ton of recipes, tons of pictures. And if you have, you know, a few bucks... Throw a few dollars her way. Keep the fermentation research and learning out there. And she's doing a lot of good things. And definitely go check out all her pictures and her website. So, Tara, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks, Paul. I really enjoyed being able to come on the show. All right. This has been Paul Bates from the Fermentation Podcast, along with Tara Witsit, encouraging you to put fermentation into practice, ferment responsibly, and get out there and create some culture. 